Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook to Tales to Terrify, and welcome to October. Ah, This is our month, is it not? Yes, it is. The chill begins to ooze into the world. The night sky runs in cloud, and things of the imaginations run with the wind and dodge the stars. The clouds scud across the moon and stars, and isn't that a wonderful word? Scud to describe the run of clouds when October skies are full of night and moon and witches and other things. Writing coaches tell you not to use words like scud to describe what clouds do on a night when the sky seems to run before a storm. The coach will tell you, avoid words like that. They call attention to themselves. They stop the reader on the page. They say, if you don't have anything interesting or new to say about those clouds, telling us that they are scudding along won't help. Well, that's probably true. But boy, words like that work on the ear. Okay, good evening. I'm Lawrence Santoro. This is the Nook. That, out there in the night is fall. And here, on the wall, is new art. Take a moment. Have a look. The artist tells me the painting is called Hawaiian Een. The painter, and this is paint, paint on material, is creeper creature creator Brad Tiki Shark Parker. Old Man Parker, as he sometimes calls himself, has worked in the comic biz from the independents all the way over to Marvel and D.C. 
He's art-directed computer games, games for arcades and home video games. And for a while, he was a storyboard artist and senior production illustrator for commercials. He's worked commercials with directors such as David Fincher. He's worked music videos with directors such as Rob Zombie. And Hollywood movies with directors such as Bill Condon and Clive Barker. He says that even though he's worked on some big-budget films, his all-time favorite film experience was working on the low-budget cult classic horror film Jeepers Creepers and Jeepers Creepers 2, for which, along with storyboarding the film, he got to design the titular Creeper Creature and thus add one more movie monster to film history. Brad has now retired from Hollywood and has moved to the active volcanic tropical island of Hawaii. Now I explore tiki culture and paint polypop surrealistic art, he says. That's also known as lowbrow or tiki art. Of his work, he says, it is his personal celebration of a creative reinvention of foolish misinterpretation of an ancient mythology that sought to solve the mystery of the breath of life that eternally and precariously surfs the complete expanse between the bottomless sea and the floating shadowland of pre-existence in the inconceivable heights of the sky. He would not be afraid of words like scud. Brad has shown several times at the world-famous birthplace of lowbrow art, the La Luz de Jesus Gallery in Los Angeles, and I apologize if I've said that wrong, and he will show there again in the summer of 2014. You can find them at laluzdejesus.com. That's L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S dot com. For the past five years, Brad Parker's been represented in Spectrum, the year's best in contemporary fantastic art. That's every year for the past five years. That is Spectrum issues 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, which will be out next month. And he's one of 30 artists featured this year in Surf Graphics by British publisher Carrero Books. You can buy Brad's art at the Wyland Kona Oceanfront Gallery. For those of you not in Hawaii, the gallery website is www.wylandbigisland.com. That's W-Y-L-A-N-D-BigIsland.com. That's all one word. Or you can buy it on Brad's site, which is www.tikishark.com. Business. Okay. Ah business. To sum it up in three short words, buy the book. Hmm? Says it all. But as you realize, of course, we cannot let it go at that. Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, is just about ready to come from behind the curtain and show itself. We'll have more about what it'll look like later. But let me tease you just a little bit. Let me say, we've got writers from four continents. We've got Weston Oaks, Karen Warren, Joe R. Lansdale, Angela Slater, Felicity Dowker, Kat Rambo. We've got Martin Munt's Chair, the story that kicked off this series of podcasts way back in January. 
There's Christopher Fowler, John Shirley, Gary McMahon, more, more, more. And before I get too excited with explicating that three-word koan by the book, there is, ah, yes, there is, Gene Wolfe. A pause here. Gene Wolfe is a national treasure. His work has garnered awards galore, but that's, that's almost not important. Gene has established himself as a great writer, not just a great writer of speculative fiction, of horror, of science fiction, dark fantasy, and what all. He's just a damn good writer. I have a personal connection, as do you, with the story we're lucky enough to have for Volume 1. It is The Tree is My Hat. Let me tell a tale. Sometime back when the world was different, back in the year 2000, maybe a little earlier, I was asked to adapt a story by Gene for the World Horror Convention that was going to be here in Chicago. Gene was to be guest of honor at the con, and the people putting the event together wanted to honor him by putting one of his tales on stage for people to hear. The story I chose was The Tree is My Hat. And we did it with a cast of professional Chicago actors and some talented amateurs, such as oh, Gay and Wilson, PC, Trish Kasich, Neil Gaiman. Okay, well, maybe they weren't all that amateur, but the production was a success. And the script was nominated for a Stoker that year. And then Tony Smith at the Starship Sofa several years later asked Gene for a story, and Gene generously pointed him in my direction. And, well, the recording of our production of The Tree is My Hat is still show number 49 at the Starship, so stop by and listen. Then buy the book on October 31st, wherein is Gene's original story without all of my cuts, shifts, emendations, and amendments. It is pure Gene, and it does not get any better than that. Right? Right. Soon, you'll be able to click on a button and order the book in either ebook form, paper, or hardback. At this time, prices are kind of in a state of flux, but it looks like the ebook might be around three pounds ninety nine. Uh, that comes in at about six fifty U.S. dollars. The paperback will be about ten pound ninety nine, or roughly eighteen American dollars, and the hardback for sixteen pound ninety nine, or twenty seven fifty or so. Again, that is not set in stone. That money will assure your continued access to the nook, to the weekly gathering of all of us children of the night, to the stories and the special features we present, and it will keep Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, purring, as all contented beasts should. Soon you'll be able to go to a website and get a peek at things book pertinent. So limber up your wallets and get ready for the Halloween launch of The Book. Next week, count on more about Tales to Terrify Volume 1, including some words about the spectacular interior and cover art. Oh, yeah, there is one more bit of business. Visualize me here, now, head hung in shame. Full apopolyloges, my droogs, I have misled you. 
the Joe Haldeman Seminar on Writing Science Fiction over at the Mothership, the Good Ship, Starship Sofa, is on Sunday, November 11. That is Sunday, not Saturday, as I reported last week. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And how could I have been so foolish? And now... Back again for this month's installment of Horror 101 is our resident academic, Kevin Lucia. This month, we'll examine two Gothic classics. Well, I'll let Kevin tell you all about it. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Horror 101. Today, we're going to continue our examination of the Gothic novel. But before we do that, I want to lay out a tentative plan for the future of this series. I've been thinking about it quite a bit over the last month or so. And because horror is such a wide, diverse genre, instead of plodding along and trying to hit all these works in chronological order up to modern day, I want to follow along what I'd like to call the different strands of horror fiction. For example, the Gothic novel hasn't disappeared. We begin with The Castle in Toronto. We still have the Gothic novel today. It's still a viable strand of the horror genre. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to travel along the strands of of the horror genre, come to the modern times, and then end up backtracking a little bit. Hopefully that won't get too confusing. But, for example, we're currently on the Gothic strand right now. We'll travel through Lefanu, Poe, Hawthorne with the House of the Seven Gables, Haunting of Hill House, M.R. James, and then come to the present. Then I would like to look at another strand of horror fiction, which we could consider to be weird fiction. In weird fiction, we would consider authors like Arthur Matchin, Laura Dunsany, Lovecraft, A. Merritt, Howard, William Hope Hodgson, Derleth, weird fiction, and bring bring us up to the present on that. And then we could even look at the fantastic, when we're thinking again of Laura Dunsany, Manly Wade Wellman, Jack Finney, Ray Bradbury, where, yes, the fantastic is kind of on the, the borderline of horror, between horror and fantasy, but these are all different strands of the horror genre, and they still all exist today, which, once again, just goes to show what a very diverse and wide genre it is. It's hard to pin down, and I just got to thinking about that, and it was going to be hard to try to hit all the strands within a time period and just kind of plod my way up to modern times. So I think that's how I'm going to pursue this series. And again, I'll just continue your comments on the Tales of Terrify website. They've been very, very helpful on helping me frame my thoughts uh, for the future of this podcast. So, to begin, let's review a little bit what I talked about last time with the Gothic novel. In Noel Carroll's The Philosophy of Horror, which once again I highly recommend as an academic look at the development of the horror genre, he cited, and he didn't create them, he was just citing these categories from other sources, he cited four main categories of Gothic fiction. The first is historical Gothic, and that's simply a tale in an imagined past. There's no supernatural elements in the historical Gothic. Then there's the natural and explained Gothic. This is where we begin a story with supernatural overtones. But by the end of the story, we explain them all away with natural occurrences. And I like the comment that someone made on the Tales of Terrify website uh, a couple of weeks ago about how this is essentially not to be glib, but isn't this essentially the Scooby-Doo ending, where it's not a ghost, it's not a demon, but it's old Mr. Withers in a mask trying to scare people away so he can find buried treasure. Uh, that's essentially the natural explained Gothic. Then we have the supernatural Gothic, where there are supernatural powers there that are at work. The final is the equivocal Gothic, which, in this case, 
it renders the supernatural ambiguous because they have given us psychologically scarred or psychologically disturbed characters. So at the very end, we're never quite sure. Was it supernatural? Were they just hallucinating? And again, like all the different strands of the horror genre, that still exists today too. When you think of all the thrillers where we're not sure if the character was hallucinating this, did this really occur, that still exists today. The two works that we're going to look at for this podcast are going to be The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe and The Monk by Matthew Lewis. And both of these fit into two different categories of gothic fiction, so it's going to be nice to look at them and see how they play off against each other. First, before we get to those two works, we're going to look at Anne Radcliffe's essay entitled On the Supernatural in Poetry. In this essay, which was originally intended to be like a foreword before a posthumously published novel of hers, Gleston de Blonville, in this essay, she takes two fictional characters, Mr. S and Mr. W, and they form a dialogue about the, the proper place of the supernatural in fiction. And especially in uh, Shakespeare's plays, they're looking at Shakespeare, Milton, things like that. And in this essay, Anne Radcliffe highlights the differences between what she considers to be terror and what she considers to be horror. Which, again, this definition is still very valid when you think of horror fiction and horror films today. Essentially, the core of the essay is when Anne Radcliffe has her Mr. W., one of the main uh, characters in her dialogue, define the difference between terror and horror as being this. And I quote, Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul, that being terror, and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. Now, in the context of this essay, Mr. W., maintains that terror is the higher form of literature uh, than horror, especially because according to the, the framework of this essay, Mr. W. says that terror is seen in glimpses through obscuring shades, the gray outlines only appearing which excite the imagination to complete the rest, whereas horror throws it out there, we see it, we're exposed to it, terror teases the imagination. It shows us what's not there, or it, uh, it leaves the blanks open for us to fill in with our own imagination. And in many ways, again, today, we can still see that distinction in major subgenres of horror. You know, a lot of the work by Charles Grant, T.M. Wright, Ramsey Campbell, what has been termed as quiet horror can be seen carrying this forth. That idea that terror, that what's lingering in the shadows can be ultimately more powerful than gore, more powerful than you know an eviscerated corpse laid out in all of its glory. Although we will, at some point, we're going to be addressing splatterpunk fiction as well, which really found its grounding um, According to my limited knowledge, of course, I'll be expanding my knowledge base along with everyone else as we go along here. But Splatterpunk, the Splatterpunk movement found its its roots in the early 80s. Um, so we're not, not to say that gore is necessarily, how shall I say, less important artistically, but that quiet horror, that terror accesses a whole different range of emotions and reactions than horror itself does. And when we're considering our two works today, The Mysteries of Adolfo and The Monk, one of them operates strictly along the lines 
of terror, and that is the mysteries of Adolfo Bayan Rancliffe. The monk certainly has terror there in it, but it goes the fuller length, fuller scope of becoming a fully realized horror novel that's recognizable in contemporary terms because it has it has that supernatural. It does have that lingering terror, but we end up getting the horror by the end of that book as well. Now, Radcliffe goes on in her essay to cite a specific example from Sh- from Shakespeare, Hamlet in particular, to show that along uh, the lines of terror, how important it is for a writer or a creator or a poet to create a sense of atmosphere that is the perfect vehicle for delivering this terror, which, once again, we can see those writers today, um, or in the last 20 or 30 years, that were considered to be very atmospheric. That was something they did very well, where they brought this feeling of unease out, not necessarily by a, uh, a bloodied, mangled corpse or a slathering demon, but I always think of Ramsey Campbell when I think of moonlight, where you just have this quiet sense of unease with the way a moon is casting a glow over a field or something like that. And Radcliffe goes on to cite Hamlet with the following, I quote, Above every ideal being is the ghost of Hamlet, which, with all its attendant incidents of time and place, the dark watch upon the remote platform, the dreary aspect of the night, the very expression of the office on guard. The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. The recollection of a star, an unknown world, are all circumstances which excite forlorn, melancholy, and solemn feelings, and disposes to welcome, with trembling curiosity, the awful being that draws near, and to indulge in that strange mixture of horror, pity, and indignation produced by the tale it reveals. Every minute circumstance of the scene between those watching on the platform and of that between them and Horatio preceding the entrance of the apparition contributes to excite some feeling of dreariness or melancholy or solemnity or expectation in unison with and leading on toward that high curiosity and thrilling awe with which we witness the conclusion of the scene. So in essence, and I guess in plainer language, what Radcliffe is saying here is that, especially in this case of Hamlet, terror is so much better excited in the reader, or in this case the viewer, because we're talking about uh, the play Hamlet, when the scene itself is crafted to naturally bring that sense of unease. When it's dark, it's cold, there are stars out, there's a sense of displacement because of the night. These are all naturally occurring emotions that's going to only help increase the impact of when the apparition of the ghost finally appears. And again, at the risk of repeating myself, this has become the hallmark of what we would consider today to be quiet horror. Horror that's that's bound in the atmospheric, that's bound in emotional responses rather than a vivid, gruesome detail. Now, moving on to the works themselves, The Mystery of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe and The Monk by Matthew Lewis. The Mysteries of Adolfo fits perfectly, of course, into the Gothic category. We have the beleaguered, pursued female who is alone in Gothic castle surroundings. Uh, She's been displaced. Her mother has died. Her father has died. She is now living with a dismissive aunt and her cruel new husband. They have moved away to a remote castle where she is all alone and there's an unwanted suitor that's oppressing her. 
And we have all these uh, supernatural occurrences like doors closing, mysterious apparitions, sounds in the night that all set the scene very nicely for uh, a classic gothic tale. Uh, and someone in the last, uh, uh, the comments of the last podcast recommended that perhaps that we could uh, read a little snippet of the things that, uh, that we're covering. And I, I want to do that here in a minute with The Mysteries of Adolfo, because one thing I can definitely recommend about The Mysteries of Adolfo that I found to be its strength for the most part is this very vivid description, very vivid very uh, powerful imagery of, of setting in place. There are times where the prose gets a little bit too purple, a little too heavy, but some of the opening descriptions, uh, when they are coming into a new setting or they're traveling, uh, were just very, very powerful. I'm going to give you the, the opening paragraph here of Chapter 1 of The Mysteries of Adolfo. And just as a side note, there are several French names here. Uh, because this takes place uh, partly in France, and I am probably going to mangle all of these French names. So just, you know, I just bear with me on that. On the pleasant banks of the Grone, in the province of Gascony, stood, in the year 1584, the Chateau of Monsieur saint From its windows were seen the pastoral landscapes of Guinine and Gascony stretching along the river, gay with luxuriant woods and vine, and plantations of olives. To the south, the view was bounded by the majestic Pyrenees, whose summits, veiled in clouds, or exhibiting awful forms, seen and lost again, as the partial vapors rolled along, were sometimes barren, and gleamed through the blue tinge of air, and sometimes frowned with forests of gloomy pine that swept downward to their base. These tremendous precipices were contrasted by the soft green of the pastures and woods that hung upon their skirts, among whose flocks and herds and simple cottages the eye, after having scaled the cliffs above, delighted to repose. To the north and to the east, the plains of Guinea and Languedoc were lost in the mist of distance. On the west, Gascony was bounded by the waters of Biscay. So there, there's a really good example of uh, some of the prose, the mysteries of Adolfo. And uh, I, I believe it's one of the, the uh, work's strengths, is that we have some very nice setting description, uh, opening scenes very vividly placed in where we are. And definitely, definitely one of the strengths of the novel. And again, as the plot of the novel, this very much falls into natural and explained gothic. Emily St. Albert. Our main character, uh, again, her parents die, uh, and she's adopted by her aunt, who's very dismissive. She marries a nobleman who's he's kind of sketchy. I'm not sure if he's had some past dealings with unsavory characters. They move to a distant castle. There's an unwanted suitor, and of course, her love, Valancourt, a man she met while traveling with her father and fallen in love with, of course, they are not allowed to be together, and so we've got that unrequited love um, that's so popular with Gothic fictions. A lot of these events at the castle are eventually explained. How are they explained? Spoiler alert. Pirates. And I guess, I guess why the Scooby-Doo reference really struck me. Pirates. Pirates are hiding in the castle, smuggling. Uh, there's a man who's been a prisoner there in the castle for years. So all these mysterious comings and goings and secret doors and sounds in the night are completely explained away. And Emily ends up returning and assuming control of the state after... Um, Everyone kind of gets what they deserve, and she ends up getting Valancourt in the end. Um, so this is a really good example of the natural explained Gothic. Where we're, we're definitely given these moments of unsettling, unease, and maybe even terror. But in the end, the natural laws of the world are reaffirmed. 
and there are no ghosts, uh, and everything ends, lack for lack of a better term, we have the Scooby-Doo ending. In this case, it was pirates. So that is a, a good example of the natural or explained gothic tale. Now we move over to The Monk by Matthew Lewis. And I cannot say enough about The Monk. I certainly recommend The Mysteries of Adolfo simply because, again, some of those those uh, vivid descriptions of the setting, very lush prose. You know, it's, it's kind of that, like, it's like reading Bradbury in some ways that you really feel like that you're chewing over something of substance. But when you're talking about the perfect forerunner of what we might consider to be the modern horror novel, The Monk is simply a wonderful read, a great read, and it hits so many levels, hits so many levels that we would consider to be a successful modern horror tale. The Monk is a story that features, of course, a monk who is uh, very taken with his own religious importance, considers himself to be a holy, pious man. He's he's almost like a, again, I hate to be glib, and I hope there's no one out there cringing at uh, me being so casual with this, but he's almost like a, a, a monk rock star. Like, everyone loves him, everyone goes to his sermons, but again, already there, we see one of the most classic pitfalls that can be found in any tale, not just a horror tale, but hubris. Believing a little too much in your own goodness, a little too much in your own religiosity, uh, and when you start separating yourself from that and thinking that you are special, you are chosen, we're set up for uh, destruction and failure, and that's what ends up happening in The Monk. So essentially, this novel is, is partially about the downfall of Ambrosio, a uh, celebrated priest and monk, as he falls because of his pride. Uh, there's a scene early on in the book where he is very unforgiving of a of a nun who was found to be pregnant. She entered the convent, realized it was a mistake, and she's taken a lover who, you know, that she's gotten pregnant. She wants to leave the convent, and he's very rigid, very strict, until he discovers that one of his attendants, one of his fellow monks, is actually a woman who has disguised herself as a monk because she's in such religious awe of Ambrosio. And she, at first, says that she does not want a physical relation with Ambrosio. She simply wants to bask in the aura of his holiness, so to speak. And here we have, again, one of the classic tropes of any type of work of fiction, but especially you can see this in horror fiction, because as the novel develops, Matilda, our little female monk in disguise, throughout the course of the novel, changes from humble, willing servant of God who just wants to learn at Ambrosio's feet to a sly, cunning agent of evil. And she ends up dabbling in the occult, and she ends up slowly leading Ambrosio astray. And it's, it's left a little unclear. Was she really pure? And then she made a deal with the devil to save Ambrosio's life, and that corrupted her? Or was she corrupt from the very beginning? And we have a lot of social commentary here, uh, again, on too much power in the church and what one man's pride and own belief in himself can do. In some ways, I don't view this as being an indictment of religion or God by any means, but you can very easily read it as an indictment of man's own pride, because Ambrosio clearly believes in himself as a chosen one of God, and he rationalizes almost every step of the way why he's special. 
Mitchell, why he should be allowed to do this. As, of course, as predicted, he and Matilda end up descending into a depraved relationship um, while keeping on this very religious front. And again, this is this is a timeless theme that applies to all generations and, and, and is what helps fine works of horror transcend just the just the label of horror. And there are many other things going on in this uh, novel as well. Agnes is the nun who has uh, been planning to run away to be with her lover, and her relatives come looking for her because they realize uh, that she's made a mistake and, and they're trying to bring her back to the fold. Um, and then once Ambrosio, as usually happens in these type of relationships, he loses sexual interest in Matilda and starts lusting after a pure maiden uh, from the village, Matilda then says, okay, then I'll help you get your desires. And she, of course, starts entreating uh, dark, unholy powers. Uh, so now we have another step of the temptation. So you could have easily rewritten the, the title here as The Temptation of the Monk or The Temptation of Ambrosio because that's essentially what happens. The reason why I like to consider this a really good example of the complete horror novel is that we have this terror and unease and we're just watching the dissolution of Ambrosio step by step and we know what's going on here so there is that sense of oh no what's going to happen to him but there is gore too at the end when it's all said and done ambrosio's misdeeds are brought to light and he's sitting in jail he of course is visited by old man scratch himself and he's offered an opportunity for escape which of course ambrosio misreads because in his offer to escape his jail cell the devil has by no means told Ambrosio, oh, you're going to live and survive. He's just offered you to take you out of your cell, which ends in kind of a, especially for this early of a time, delightfully gory ending for poor Ambrosio. And of course, spoiler alert here, this is revealed to us at the end of the book that this has been Lucifer's plan all along. We finally learn at the end that yes, Matilda has been an agent of, of evil and her goal has been to entice and to ruin Ambrosio. We also learn on top of everything, that the young maiden, Antonia, that he's been seducing and trying to get after after he gets tired of Matilda, we end up learning, kind of in a pre-Darth Vader-ish Star Wars way, we end up learning that Antonia's mother was also Ambrosio's mother. So on top of everything else, we can add the, the intent to commit incest on his crimes. And Lucifer takes Ambrosio up into the clouds and drops him on the rocks below where he lays there and dies you know, after its suffering and, and for six days. And again, one of the strengths of the monk is that its prose is much more readable than the Mysteries of Adolfo. Again, the Mysteries of Adolfo had a lot to recommend it as far as its lush and vivid prose, but the, the monk is a much more modern tale, especially in its narrative. There is one bit of backstory that really drags on a little bit um, that wasn't necessary. But for the most part, The Monk is an extremely accessible read uh, and much closer to our uh, version of, of the modern horror tale. So, um, that wraps up my installment. I've run a little over long, longer than I usually do. Again, recommendations for early Gothic novels. The Mysteries of Adolfo is a natural explaining Gothic tale. I recommend it simply for its lush prose and, and descriptions um, at times. Again, the, the one downside to a natural explained Gothic, depending on your preferences, is the letdown at the end. I can remember a, a novel, a modern novel, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, by Athol Dickinson, 
um, that had that whole setup where we're like, oh, is, is the person a witch? Is she evil? What's going on? Everything's explained at the end. For some of us, that explanation is kind of like, really? I, I was kind of hoping there would be a witch. Um, definitely recommend The Monk simply because the prose is very accessible. It's an enthralling story, one that successfully uh, mixes both the terror and the horror and uh, has some insightful social commentary uh, and also it's, it's a, a very close approximation to a, a modern archetype, you know, an archetype for the modern horror novel. For next time, uh, we're looking at uh, Le Fenu and a uh, classic, of course, by um, Mary Shelley Frankenstein. So until then, uh, please continue to, to comment and, uh, and, and to post comments on the Tales Terrify blog. And I thank you for all the comments and advice, and we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Kevin. You know, somehow I had missed reading both of these books, a matter which I am correcting almost as we speak. Both The Mysteries of Udolfo and The Monk are available in free Kindle editions. I have them, and I just await finishing up a few other odds and ends to begin reading them myself. So I recommend you have a peek at them. And thanks again, Kevin. We're looking forward to the next episode of Horror 101. And now, fiction. Our tale to terrify tonight comes from an old friend of the show. You'll remember Tim Wagoner's very short piece, Unwoven, in one of your very, very early visits to the Nook. I'm sure you remember his longer piece, Long Way Home. And let me tell you just a bit about Tim once again. At the age of five, he made his own comic book version of King Kong versus Godzilla. A few years later, he began selling professionally, and since then, he's published more than 20 novels, two collections. He's done articles on writing for Writer's Digest and the Writer's Journal. Tim teaches creative writing at Sinclair Community College and in Seton Hill University's Master of Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction program. Before we begin today, we've recently had a call for zombie tales, and I said that, for the most part, I'm not a fan of the shuffling dead. Okay, I take that back for this tale. Here is Tim Wagoner's Do No Harm. The doctor stood in the middle of a street littered with wrecked and abandoned cars, gazing upon the twisted, bloodied bodies of her people lying motionless on the asphalt. A half-dozen in all, an even mix of male and female, ranging in ages from late teens to early seventies, empty metal buckets scattered around them. Several of the searchers had limbs missing, and those limbs that remained attached had been broken in numerous places. Their flesh was crisscrossed by ragged wounds, some injuries inflicted by knives, but just as many made by teeth. There was blood everywhere thick and sticky in their hair, soaked dark into their clothes, pooled crimson on the blacktop around them. 
The doctor wasn't worried that her people were dead, though. For one thing, she didn't experience emotions such as worry anymore, couldn't remember a time when she did, no longer possessed the capacity to even understand the basic concept. But the main reason she didn't fear her people were dead was that these days death no longer meant what it used to. She turned to her right and looked at the lifter. No words passed between them, but none were necessary. The lifter gazed back at her for a moment, eyes unblinking, and then he shuffled toward the bodies. He was a tall male in his late thirties, broad-shouldered with thick black hair and facial stubble that would never grow again. He gave no signal, but three other cold ones followed him, all males, all big like him, though none of them as strong as they once were. While the four had possessed individual names before, they no longer did, and the doctor saw no reason to give them any. She simply thought of them, inasmuch as she could think at all, as lifters. The lifters were thinner than they used to be, limbs lean, faces narrow, but they were still strong enough to get the job done. The doctor watched the four males pick up the broken searchers and put them into the gray wooden wagon they'd pulled all the way from Oakview Street. Once it had been a farmer's wagon, drawn by horses, but the doctor recalled nothing of such things. She understood the big wheels turned and the flat surface the wheels supported was good for putting things onto, and that by pulling the wagon things could be transported from one place to another, and that was the extent of her knowledge on the subject. Still, she was the only one in the hive with such understanding, which is one of the things that made her queen. As the lifters worked, the doctor kept watch. She turned her head back and forth as the lifters piled the wounded into the cart, as much to keep scenting the air as to conduct visual surveillance. Heightened senses are one of the small one's gifts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And if any of Bolt's people approached, she'd smell them before seeing them. It was a warm afternoon in late April, a gentle breeze blowing, birds singing, and pollen thick in the air. The doctor had suffered from seasonal allergies when she'd been a warm one, but she breathed without discomfort now. 
The small ones inside her provided many benefits, immunity to allergens being among the least of them. The town of River's Edge was located in southwestern Ohio, and while the doctor remembered neither the town's name nor its location, she retained a dim recollection of spring, and she felt a slight stirring deep within, an echoing ghost of something that once might have been joy. But that feeling, faint as it was, was quickly superseded by a sense of wariness. Glenmont Street lay on the edge of Bolt's territory, and she understood instinctively that it had been members of his hive who'd attacked and injured the searchers as they'd been out scavenging for meat. It certainly hadn't been the warm ones doing. They committed their violence cleanly, a single bullet to the brain or a swift decapitation. Bolt was a savage creature, and thus his followers were savage too. The doctor looked up and down the deserted suburban street, and while she saw no sign that Bolt's people remained nearby, or better yet, smelled no sign, she knew better than to relax her guard. She carried no weapons, though they were easy enough to come by these days. As a rule, the cold ones didn't use guns. They could fire them well enough, though their aim was awful, but they didn't possess the fine motor skills necessary to reload, and the concept of firearm maintenance was well beyond their limited mental capacity. Simple hand weapons such as knives and clubs were easier for them to handle, but when she'd been a warm one, the doctor had taken an oath to hurt no one, and while she no longer had any memory of making that vow, it was such a deep part of her that she continued to live by that oath today. And since she would carry no weapon, no member of her hive would either. It was the way of things now. A scent of dried blood and old filth drifted to her on the wind, and she knew that one or more of Bolt's people were returning. They needed to leave before the others arrived. Even malnourished, her lifters were stronger than she, but there were only four of them, and without weapons, and more to the point, without the savagery that drove Bolt's people, they would stand little chance against their attackers. In the wordless way of the queen, she urged the lifters to work faster, and they responded, moving stiffly but more rapidly, and within moments the last of the wounded was loaded onto the wagon. She'd gathered the searchers' buckets while the lifters worked, and dropped them in the wagon too. When everything was ready, the lifters took up their positions, two on either side of the wagon's shaft, grabbed hold of it, lifted, and began pulling. They were no longer as strong as they once were, and it took some effort to get the laden wagon moving, but finally the wheels turned and the wagon began rolling slowly down the street. The doctor walked alongside the wagon, senses alive and alert for danger. Though the wounded in the wagon displayed no signs of life, she could sense their pain, and on a level so deep she was scarcely aware of it, she wished she still could speak so that she might offer them words of comfort. But she had no voice, not to mention no capacity for language, and so she walked in silence. The most direct route to the hive's home was to take McKinley to Maine, and then continue on Maine to Oakview. The doctor recalled none of these names, didn't recognize the street signs for what they were, and even if she had, she wouldn't have understood the tiny marks on the signs were letters, let alone be able to read them. But she was able to find her way around River's Edge through instinct, and it was that same instinct which told her that the most direct route home was also the most risky. For McKinley Street was where the high school was located, and while she didn't remember what the group of buildings was called or its original purpose, she understood its current function quite clearly. It served as the warm one's nest. And a good nest it was, too. 
The ground floor entrances and windows had been barricaded to keep intruders out, and the worm ones were able to fire upon any attackers from the second floor windows or the roof. The worm ones were most active during the day, and while they tended to stick close to their home territory, it didn't pay for any cold one to roam too close to their nest, especially during the daylight hours. The wounded searchers in the back of the wagon needed to be returned to the hive's nest as soon as possible so the doctor could treat them, so she was willing to travel along the outskirts of the warm one's territory, but she knew better than to go too deeply into it. She wanted to repair the searchers as soon as possible, but to do that, she and the lifters needed to survive to reach the hive. So they would take a more roundabout way, McKinley to Robertson to Hyacinth and then to Oakview, approaching the hive's home from the opposite direction. It would take longer, nearly 45 minutes longer, though the doctor no longer reckoned time by the ticks of a clock, but it would have to do. The doctor and the lifters continued toward home, moving in the slow, plodding way of their kind. There were many things the doctor no longer remembered, her human name chief among them. She'd once been Jennifer Carducci, M.D., a general practitioner in her early 40s, married to an architect named Jim. They were so close, people often referred to them as J.J. as if they were one person, and mother of two children, Arlene, 12, and Robbie, 8. She'd worked at Health Corps Physicians, Inc., a joint practice with two other doctors, not the biggest practice in River's Edge, but large enough, and she'd been happy. Sure, there were student loans to repay, and the malpractice insurance payments were a bitch, and dealing with the red tape of insurance providers and the endless visits of pharmaceutical reps were persistent pains in her ass, but she loved being a doctor, almost as much as she loved being a wife and mother, and she wouldn't have traded her life for anything. And her life would have continued along that path, and everyone else's in the world would have continued trundling along theirs— if some insanely bright and well-intentioned corporate scientist hadn't invented the Vergrandi, from the Latin Vergrandis, meaning small. A quantum leap in nanotechnology, the Vergrandi were of special concern to the medical community, for they were designed to constantly renew the body's cellular structure, repairing injuries, protecting against disease, and combating aging. In short, they would do for humanity what physicians had been struggling to accomplish for thousands of years— make the practice of medicine obsolete. Jennifer had been skeptical when the first announcements of the Vergrandi's existence hit the news, but as the months passed and more information was released, she became cautiously optimistic. Yes, if the Vergrandi worked as advertised, her profession would become a thing of the past, but as far as she was concerned, the benefits for the human race far outweighed any personal inconvenience to herself and her fellow medical practitioners. But when it was revealed that the Vergrandi were, in a sense, alive and could reproduce, Jennifer's optimism began to wane. And when it was discovered that the nanodevices mimicked life to the point that they could mutate and evolve, her optimism gave way to fear. She was hardly alone in her misgivings. Many of the world's top scientists sounded increasingly strident notes of caution, but the company that held the patents on the Vergrandi assured everyone that the nanodevices were being tested under conditions of strictest safety, and there was nothing to worry about. And then the damned things learned how to move from one body to another like a virus and escaped their tightly controlled environment. The nanodevices spread across the globe like a plague of good health, infecting the human race with almost unimaginable rapidity. Within three months, every man, woman, and child on the planet had millions of Vergrandi floating in their bloodstreams, keeping them healthy and strong. 
At first, it seemed like the only people to suffer would be the stockholders of the company who'd accidentally given the Vergrandi to the world free of charge. But then things began to change. A small segment of the population became resistant to the Vergrandi, and their bodies rejected the nanodevices, returning the host to their previous state of unassisted health. A much larger segment of the population dropped dead, all within the course of a few weeks. No one was sure whether the bodies rebelled against the presence of the Fergrandi or whether the nanodevices had somehow malfunctioned and killed their human host. A last segment of the population, larger than those who no longer possessed Fergrandi but smaller than those who died, transformed. They continued to enjoy the health benefits of their artificially created passengers, but their higher brain functions deteriorated. Why? No one knew. Some malfunction in the Vergrandi's programming, perhaps, or a result of mutation. Some believe the Vergrandi purposely damaged their hosts' brains in order to keep them from being smart enough to discover a way to neutralize the nanodevices. Whatever the reason, the body temperature of those afflicted dropped significantly, their skin becoming ice blue and cold to the touch. And the Vergrandi inside them, who'd once drawn nourishment from the food their hosts ate, no longer were able to fuel themselves on Twinkies, fast food hamburgers, and other staples of the human diet. Now they could only metabolize one fuel source, human flesh, and not just any human, only those without active Vergrandi in their blood. The Vergrandi weren't cannibals, after all. They wouldn't eat others of their own kind. The cold ones seriously diminished brain functions, which also resulted in their becoming slow-moving and uncoordinated, should have given the warm ones the advantage, making it easy for them to reclaim the planet. But the Vergrandi gave their surviving children some new attributes to compensate for what they'd taken away. The cold ones began to group in hives centered around a king or queen, one of their kind who possessed a higher degree of mental functionality than the rest. In truth, the difference in brain power wasn't all that great, but in the kingdom of the mindless, the slightly more intelligent ruled. Once a hive formed, the Vergrandi linked together in a network that provided the hive members with a low-level degree of wordless communication that functioned like a form of telepathy with the king or queen in control. Jennifer remembered none of this. She didn't remember her husband and children dying when the Vergrandi and their bodies turned sour for whatever unknown reason, and she didn't remember the three days it took her to lose most of her mind as the nano-devices inside her, instead of killing her, which she would have much rather preferred, transformed her into a cold one. And not just any cold one, but a queen. Thus Jennifer, who thought of herself as the doctor when she thought of herself at all, found herself living in a new world, a mostly empty one, with only a handful of cold ones and warm ones scattered across the globe, contending with one another as they fought for survival. Not exactly better living through technology. The doctor looked down at the motionless searcher lying upon the examining table. There was no light in the room, but that didn't matter. Thanks to the small ones, her eyes could see in the dark as well as they could in full daylight, which, since there was no electricity to power the lights in the building, was useful. In her previous life as a physician, she would have examined the middle-aged woman, checked for symptoms, listened to her chest and lungs with a stethoscope, and then drawn on her training and experience to make a diagnosis and develop a treatment plan. But her mind didn't work that way anymore. Step-by-step logic was beyond her capabilities. But diminished as they were, she wasn't entirely without mental resources to draw on. 
The woman, who'd been an accountant named Phyllis Basner once, and a patient of the doctor's, as were most of the members of her hive, had lost her left leg below the knee and her right arm up to the shoulder, along with a good portion of her face, all thanks to Bolt's people. Her left arm and right leg were still attached, but the bones had been broken numerous places in both limbs. The small ones had stopped the bleeding, but they'd done nothing to seal the wounds or knit the broken bones, let alone begin regrowing the missing limbs. The small ones could work miracles, it was true, but they couldn't do it on their own. They needed help. They needed meat. The doctor bent down and reached into a metal bucket one of the lifters had brought in. Inside were pieces of a dead worm one Bolt's people had killed several days ago, bits of skin, muscle, fat, and organs they'd left behind when they were done feasting. The doctor's searchers had discovered the remains at the edge of their hive's territory, not far from where they'd been attacked today, and they'd brought back everything they could scavenge off the mostly picked clean corpse. It hadn't been much, not even two buckets full, but it was more food than the hive had seen in a week. The doctor had been in contact with the searchers when they'd made their discovery, and she'd felt how tempted they were to devour the meat, little as it was, but she'd made them resist. They hadn't liked it, but they'd done as she commanded. They had no choice, and brought the meat back to the health corps building, where the doctor had once practiced medicine and which now served as the nest for her hive. The doctor had divided the meat equally between two buckets. She'd then fed the contents of one bucket to the weakest among her hive, those who could barely move, and she'd saved the second bucket for medical emergencies, like today. It wasn't fresh, but there was no electricity to power a refrigerator to keep it in, not that the doctor would have remembered how to use one even if the building had still possessed electricity. But the meat hadn't yet rotted to the point where the small ones couldn't draw at least some nourishment from it, so it would do. Though the searcher on the table appeared dead, the doctor could sense that the small ones inside her were still alive, just weak from lack of fuel. She pulled a gobbet of flesh out of the bucket, the mostly empty bucket, for this was the last of the six searchers she had treated today, and the meat was almost gone. She then straightened and placed the grisly morsel inside the woman's mouth. The woman didn't respond at first, but the doctor waited patiently, standing statue still and unblinking. Eventually, the woman's jaw muscles twitched once, twice, and then she began to chew. The doctor could no longer understand that the Vergrandi didn't need to wait for the woman to swallow the meat, that even now they were flooding into her mouth, carried by saliva, and beginning to break down the meat into fuel for themselves. She only knew that meat would help, and that it wouldn't take long. The small ones went to work rapidly. First, they closed the most serious of the woman's wounds, the leg and arm stumps chief among them, so they wouldn't begin bleeding again. Then they set about repairing the broken bones in her two remaining limbs. The doctor watched as the limbs shifted and writhed like serpents, the bones inside making soft rustling sounds as they set themselves and began to fuse. But while the bones did rejoin, the limbs didn't straighten completely, and when the small ones finished their work, the woman's arm and leg had healed crooked. The woman began to show signs of life once more, moving her head so that she could gaze down at the bucket, hunger in her dull gaze, mouth moving as if she were imagining chewing on what meat remained within the bucket. The doctor had a basic understanding of what had happened. The morsel she'd fed the woman hadn't provided enough fuel for the small ones to repair her fully. They had done the best they could with what they'd been given. The same thing had happened to the five searchers the doctor had treated before this one, and all had turned out the same functional but crippled.
The doctor sent out a wordless summons, and a moment later a lifter came into the examining room. He picked up the searcher and carried her out. Before the door closed behind them, the woman cast a last longing look at the bucket, and then they were gone. The doctor knew the woman could no longer do the work of a searcher, not with only one leg. And of the others she'd attempted to heal, only two of them would be able to go out into the streets and search for meat again. The other three were just as crippled as the woman and just as unable to fulfill their role in the hive. The doctor knew that she should have ordered the lifters to destroy the wounded searchers, or better yet, never gone out to retrieve them in the first place. They had taken meat that others needed to survive, and for what? They were useless now, and they would still require meat to survive, meat they could no longer help procure. But the doctor had been unable to go against her nature. She had no choice but to bring the injured searchers back and heal them as best she could, imperfect as the results had been. Perhaps they could be put to work as watchers now. The Hive already had ten watchers posted in various places surrounding the health corps buildings, on the first floor of houses, atop roofs, standing in alleys, keeping an eye out for warm ones and bolts people. Having four more pairs of eyes out there wouldn't hurt. But what the Hive really needed was meat, and a lot more than what few scraps they could scavenge from Bolt's leftovers. The doctor's understanding of things might have been quite limited these days, but she understood that all too clearly. Without meat, the small ones had no fuel to burn, and without fuel, they couldn't keep the cold ones strong and healthy. Without meat, the doctor's hive would wither and eventually die. But the doctor would hurt no one, could hurt no one, including the warm ones. She had no problem with her people eating the warm one's meat, just as long as they did not kill the warm ones to get it. But with every passing day, it was becoming more difficult to find meat to scavenge. In the first few weeks after the hive had formed, meat had been plentiful enough. There were more warm ones around back then, and because meat had been relatively easy to come by, when Bolt's people killed, they'd done so with savage abandon, eating their fill and leaving the rest behind. The doctor wasn't sure Bolt's hive had searchers, lifters, or watchers. As far as she knew, he had only hunters, and they were sloppy and wasteful, attributes that did nothing to make their hive stronger, but which were a benefit to hers. In addition, sometimes the warm ones would fight among themselves, and a death would result. The body might be buried, necessitating some digging, but more often it was left to lie where it fell, making retrieval a simple process for her searchers, as long as the body was outside the human's nest, of course. But there were fewer warm ones on the streets these days. They'd either learned to avoid the cold ones more effectively, or they'd joined with other warm ones in their nest. And with the scarcity of warm ones, Bolt's people had stopped being wasteful and started stripping the meat from their kills and taking it back to the rest of their hive. They were still somewhat sloppy when it came to stripping a carcass, but nothing like they had been. Overall, pickings were mighty slim for the doctor's hive these days, and while they were managing to survive, barely, they were hardly thriving. And this presented the doctor with a dilemma that she instinctively grasped, though she wasn't capable of fully articulating it to herself. She could not cause harm to others, but by not allowing her hive to actively hunt and kill warm ones, she was causing harm to her hive. But she could not choose to permit her hive to hunt. They were bound to her, and thus behaved as she did, and there was nothing that could be done about that. Could there? The doctor struggled to think, but it was so difficult, and she was physically weak from lack of meat.
She hadn't eaten in days, denying herself so that the others in the hive might have food, but she knew she couldn't keep that up. She was queen. Her strength was the strength of the hive. There was still a bit of meat in the bucket, and the doctor picked it up and put it in her mouth. She felt a faint, distant hint of an emotion that might have been guilt that she was seeing to her needs ahead of others, but that didn't stop her from chewing and swallowing. She felt a familiar welcome warmth spread through her body as the small one swiftly broke down the meat, absorbed its nutrients, transformed them into energy, and delivered that energy to key systems in her body. In particular, she felt her link to the hive, which had grown somewhat tenuous over the last few days, strengthen once more, and she sensed a watcher's mind reaching for hers. She'd been distantly aware that someone had been trying to get her attention for the last several minutes, but now she could hear the watcher's mental call more clearly. This watcher was stationed at a ten-minute oil change garage just down the street from the health corps building, and he was crouched inside, doing his best to remain hidden while looking out the front window. The link between them was so strong now that the doctor could see what the watcher saw just as if she were crouching beside him. Though it was dusk outside, the watcher's eyes were as sharp as any member of the hive, and he had no trouble seeing a group of cold ones stealthily making their way through the alleys on the other side of the street. He knew they were cold ones because of the stiff, jerky way they moved, and he knew they weren't members of his hive because he would have felt a connection to them if they were. Bolt's people, then, closer to the health corps building than they'd ever come before. The doctor wondered what they were doing. Hunting? The last of the warm ones had abandoned this part of town weeks ago, and there was no meat to find here. Perhaps Bolt's people were having trouble finding meat, despite their more aggressive nature, and they were forced to hunt outside their territory. But a thought whispered from deep inside the doctor's mind, perhaps a remnant of the woman she'd once been, or perhaps simply a realization delivered by the Vergrandi. Whatever the case, the thought went as such. Bolt and his people were hunting all right, but they weren't hunting warm ones. They were hunting the location of the doctor's hive. The attack on the searchers earlier hadn't been the result of an accidental encounter. It had been planned. Bolt knew she would come to retrieve her wounded people, and when she had one of Bolt's cold ones, or perhaps even Bolt himself, had followed the doctor and her lifters back to the health corps building, and once he had the location of their nest pinpointed, he had summoned the rest of his people. Now they were massed together and moving toward the building, intending to attack and... and... Her mind struggled to put the pieces together, and the Vergrandi gave her brain a small boost to allow her to do so. Bolt was coming because he wanted to destroy the doctor's hive. With them eliminated, his hive would be the only one remaining in town, and there would be no more competition for meat. She was amazed that Bolt had been able to conceive of such a complex plan, let alone carry it out. Even with the Vergrandi's help, she could barely understand the concept of plan right now. But perhaps that was the answer. The small ones, in order to protect their hosts, had directed Bolton what to do, just as her small ones were guiding her now. The small ones had only two purposes, to survive and reproduce. They had already made great changes in their hosts to transform them into cold ones, and it seemed they could make even further changes in order to safeguard their existence if necessary. The doctor felt these things subconsciously more than understood them on a cognitive level, but she didn't need much in the way of brain power to know what to do next. Enemies were coming. The hive had to flee. She sent the command to her people even as she left the examining room. 
She told them to scatter throughout their territory, find a place to hide, and then remain there until she summoned them. She felt no fear, experienced no panic, only the urgency to depart the building with swift efficiency. Once in the hall, she bumped into members of her hive who were leaving the examining rooms where they'd been standing motionless, conserving their energy, waiting until such a time as their queen had a task for them to perform. Now they moved silently, faces expressionless, eyes empty of all thought and emotion, half of them heading for the front entrance, half for the rear, walking calmly as if they were still warm ones engaged in nothing more important than a routine fire drill. But there was nothing routine about what was happening. The doctor headed for the front of the building for no other reason than it was the closest exit for her. But when she reached the lobby, she found it jammed shoulder to shoulder with her followers, all jostling one another as they attempted to reach the door. Those who were too weak or crippled to walk on their own were carried by lifters, but given how malnourished the entire hive was, the lifters looked as if they might drop their passengers at any moment. With the doctor's arrival, her cold ones began to move aside to make room for her. She hadn't requested them to do so, but she was their queen, and instinct prompted them to get out of her way. They could only manage to create a narrow aisle for her, but it was enough. She started toward the glass doors that served as the entrance to the building, but before she was halfway across the lobby, she saw a group of cold ones approaching from outside, a male leading the way, a tire iron clutched tight in his hand. He was in his mid-thirties, medium height, stout, with shaggy blonde hair, thick arms and legs, and a round belly. He wore a red t-shirt with a yellow lightning bolt emblazoned on it, along with jeans and running shoes. His clothes were torn and encrusted with dried bloodstains, rendering the lightning bolt almost invisible. The doctor hadn't known Bolt in life. He hadn't been one of her patients, and their paths had never crossed before the Vagrandi had come and changed the world forever. She'd only seen him once before, from a distance while she'd been out helping her searchers, but she had instinctively recognized him as a hive king, and she'd felt an instant instinctive antipathy toward him. He obviously felt the same way about her, for his fleshy blue-tinged features twisted into a mask of hate, lips drawn back from his teeth in a feral grin, eyes blazing with rage, and he started toward her. The members of her hive needed no prompting from her to act. She was their queen, and they would do whatever was necessary to protect her. They closed ranks before Bolt, blocking him from reaching the doctor, and the male snarled, raised his tire iron, and brought it down on the head of one of the hive in front, an elderly male who was so thin from malnourishment that he looked like a skin-draped skeleton. Bolt was much better fed than the doctor's people, and he was able to put a decent amount of muscle behind his strike. The tire iron crunched into the old man's head, denting the top of his skull, and he collapsed as if he were a machine whose off switch had just been flipped. Normally, the small ones inside him would have been able to compensate for the injury, healing it instantly, but they had few reserves to draw on. The man wasn't dead, the doctor would have sensed that, but he wasn't going to be getting up any time soon. More of Bolt's people were filing into the building, men and women, adults and children, young and old, all of them armed with knives, bats, hammers, broken bottles, simple weapons, but deadly in the right hands, especially when their opponents couldn't lift a finger to fight back. Bolt's eyes locked onto hers, and he grinned savagely.
He was a king, his mind stronger than the average cold one, and though she couldn't literally hear his thoughts, she had no trouble understanding the message implicit in that awful smile. You're mine. At a wordless command from Bolt, the members of his hive started forward, wielding their weapons with crude efficiency. The doctor's people stood their ground, taking blows and strikes with detached passivity, doing nothing to defend themselves. One by one, they bled and they fell, and the doctor could do nothing but watch and know that it was her fault. If only they would fight. But she could not cause harm, and therefore neither could they. All they could do was stand there and allow members of the rival hive to ravage their flesh in defense of a queen who could do nothing to save them. Her instincts kicked in then, warning her that she couldn't afford to stand there any longer, not if she didn't want Bolt, who was swinging his tire iron in deadly arcs, the metal coated with blood, brain matter, and bits of sodden hair, to kill her. So she turned and began to walk down the hallway as rapidly as her stiff-legged gait would permit her, heading for the back door, Bolt's shout of frustration following her. He might have been cunning enough to draw her out into the open and follow her back to the hive's home, but he was still a cold one, and he wasn't smart enough to send some of his people to attack from the rear, and the doctor stepped out of the health corps building and into an empty alley. She turned right and kept walking at a good clip, and as she fled she sent a message to her hive, telling them to flee the building and hide themselves. She would summon them later when it was safe, assuming it ever would be again. She walked on, keeping to the shadows, feeling the pain of those left behind as they surrendered to the violence of their attackers, Bolt and his people doing their savage best to make sure their enemies would never rise again. A half-moon hung high overhead and the cool night air was still. The doctor stood next to a large oak tree, keeping close to the trunk so that she might seem to be part of it should anyone glance in her direction. The tree was one of several dotting the grounds of the high school, and the doctor had stood here for three hours, gazing upon the dark buildings where the warm ones lived. She had seen few signs of life during the time she'd been here. The warm ones rarely ventured out at night, though they had sentries posted, and the doctor remained concealed to avoid offering them target practice, and they kept their windows barricaded and little light leaked through but sometimes she'd see a flickering shadow pass by a window, perhaps caused by a warm one carrying a candle to light his or her passage through the school's hallways. The doctor had come here for two reasons. The first was that her small ones whispered that this was the last place Bolt would look for her, for he wouldn't be any more eager to place himself in the warm one's gun sights than she was. The second reason was because she wanted to think, or at least come as close to thinking as she was capable of. These buildings were filled with meat, maybe the last meat in River's Edge. Meat her hive desperately needed if it was to survive. Meat they couldn't claim because she wasn't a hunter, wasn't a killer, and therefore no one in her hive could be either. She was queen. She was supposed to lead her hive, guide them, protect them. But all she was doing was slowly killing them. Something had to be done. But what? So she stood motionless in the night next to the tree, gazing upon the dark buildings filled with meat, trying to cudgel her dead brain into providing some kind of answer. But she didn't need to think, not when the small ones inside her could do the thinking for her. The hive needed meat, and since they could no longer scavenge it, they needed a leader who could kill. 
The small ones had changed the doctor once, and now, with the hive's survival at stake, they began to change her again. The transformation was well underway when she sent the hive a command to gather at a new location. She left the shelter of the oak tree and began walking away from the warm one's nest, the small ones inside her hard at work. The moon was hidden behind clouds by the time the doctor reached the house. Her house, the one she used to share with her husband and children. She hadn't chosen this location for the hive's rendezvous consciously, and she had only the vaguest sense that this place had once been important to her but it seemed fitting. A two-story house at the end of a cul-de-sac in a little neighborhood situated on the southern edge of the largest park in River's Edge, with a view of a duck pond from the kitchen window. No cozy glow from the windows, no porch light on and waiting for her. The house was dark, so much so that it seemed painted black, and the surrounding yard covered with tar. Strange how dark it was. Normally, she could see so much better at night. As she walked up the driveway, she realized her sight wasn't the only sense that had diminished. Her hearing wasn't as sharp as it used to be, and her sense of smell was dulled. And she felt warmer than usual, warmer even than she had felt after eating meat. Almost as warm as when she'd been... been... She tried to reach out to the hive, to touch their minds through the link they shared, to confirm that they had gathered in the house as she had commanded, to check and see how many of them had survived Bolt's attack. But she felt nothing. The link was gone. She stepped onto the front porch and reached for the doorknob, but she hesitated before gripping it. She wasn't sure why, but she was experiencing an emotion she hadn't felt in a long time one that only a short time ago she wouldn't have been able to put a name to, but she could name it now. Fear. Foolish. She was queen. She had no reason to fear her hive. She opened the door. It wasn't locked, and the knob turned easily, and entered. It was dark inside, and she walked slowly through the foyer, trailing her fingers along one of the walls to guide her. When she reached the hall, she turned right and kept going until she reached the great room. They were waiting for her there. She couldn't see them, but she could hear their soft breathing, and even with an unenhanced sense of smell, their odor, like overcooked meat stored in the refrigerator too long, was unmistakable. She wanted to communicate to them through the link, reassure them that everything would be all right, but instead, for the first time since the small ones had taken up residence in her body, she opened her mouth and spoke. I'm home, she said. The surviving members of her hive fell upon her eagerly, and as their teeth tore into her now warm flesh, she understood what the small ones had done to her, and she approved. The hive would have meat tonight. True, they would be without a queen, but without her reluctance to harm others holding them back, they would be free to hunt, and free to find another hive. Perhaps Bolt would claim them. He would be a good king for them, for he was far more suited to survive in this world than she was. Yes, her people were free, and now, through the grace of the small ones, so was she. Thanks for that, Tim. 
This is a creepy tale on many levels. And I love it. And I always love to have a good, grimly chilly tale be told from the point of view of those we might typically call the monster. Hmm? I'd love to hear what you have to say about it, so drop us a note, why don't you? Go to the Tales to Terrify Facebook page, like us if you haven't done so already, and leave your thoughts there. Or you could go to the Tales to Terrify website when you're looking for the button to push to sign up for Joe Haldeman's writing science fiction event, or when you're looking for the order button for Tales to Terrify Volume 1. Yes, yes, yes. And you can jump right into the forum and speak your piece on this or any story or any aspect of the show. Well, however you do it, let's have a little hive chat about this story. Yes? Yes. Do No Harm was read for us this evening by Ruth Stearns. Thanks, Ruth. Ruth is a new voice here in the Nook. She's a fan of the show and says she's thrilled to be a part of the action. She says she got her start as a narrator by reading to her husband on car trips through the empty grasslands of central Florida. Excellent. She also writes speculative fiction of her own. And as I've said many times, uh, we're lucky here at Tales to Terrify to have so many writers as narrators. Who better to cast the light and shadow of our kind of tale-telling than a writer for whom words are substance? And while she is a writer, Ruth says she is best known for combating curricular entropy as a college administrator. You can have a look at some of Ruth's speculative fiction on her blog at let me write that dot wordpress dot com and that will be that for this week. Be up and doing, be bright and chipper. Surely you've brought sweaters and wraps, so bundle up. There's a chill out there. It's in the forties, perhaps by now. We did drop down to near freezing last week, so it's not that far off. Ice, snow, the time when things once alive can be preserved out there until the thaw. Well, no worries about that. Your trip home, it's swift, and you'll remain a warm one with the effort, huh? Yeah. Just avoid the dark pockets, the places that are too quiet, yes? And soon you'll be home, and yes, have a bite of something. Meat, perhaps? Yes. Then, yes, leap into the bed, yes, and yes, pull the bedclothes over, and yes, soon asleep, yes, don't think of, well, don't think of anything but pleasant dreams. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.